Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Thanks everybody for having me this morning. So I'll talk, um, you know, cardiopulmonary exercise testing is a huge topic. Um, so I'll try to do what I can to just introduce you to the, uh, this type of modality from a non-invasive perspective and how it's applicable to the congenital heart disease population and uh, CHDPH population. Um, in addition to that, we'll also talk a little bit about just the mechanisms of exercise tolerance. So the basics about cardiopulmonary exercise testing, so it's quite useful um, with respect to assessing the amount of inhaled oxygen and expired carbon uh, dioxide, the gas exchange during stress. And we can actually assess three different types of systems, the cardiovascular, pulmonary, um, as well as neuromuscular systems. Um, and it's very useful for uh, actually being able to objectify exercise capacity. Um, you know, other types of stress tests are a little more subjective in my opinion. Um, so I think that these can be more reliant and actually are um, quite uh, accurate when we're trying to compare the estimated peak oxygen consumption to that which is measured. Um, and then it's also very useful not just for risk stratification, but also for prognostication when we're talking about our CHD population, um, as well as, uh, you know, uh, heart failure and, and clinical decline in that regard. So when we do cardiopulmonary exercise testing, it's really important to tailor the modality and exercise intensity to, you know, not just the individual's athletic ability, you know, these are congenital patients, but you know they come with a variety with respect to what their capabilities are. And yes, perception can play a part in that. Um, and their protocol should be something that's within an eight to 12 minute period. And this is typically what we look at when we're evaluating the data. And this, these are just four plots of a nine plot uh, panel that um, we typically get in our report. And I just show this to you if you ever want to familiar yourself with the results. And we look at peak oxygen consumption in the top left. We look at minute ventilation in the top right. Um, and we take a look at the responses of heart rate and uh, oxygen pulse, which can sometimes be equated to a surrogate for stroke volume in these uh, excuse me, patients. Uh, and then uh, the overall just gas exchange response um, comparing um, oxygen uptake and carbon dioxide elimination. So in our congenital heart disease population, exercise intolerance is really affected by a multitude of mechanisms, both being non-cardiac as well as cardiac. Um, and this was just a nice um, pictorial describing that, you know, going from outflow obstruction and valve disease all the way to rhythmogenic etiologies um, and medications, pressure volume overload, um, and then eventually, you know, going into the pitfalls of ventricular dysfunction, pulmonary vascular disease, um, and also incorporating some musculoskeletal abnormalities. We can see scoliosis, for instance, sometimes in this population, and then um, common things such as anemia. And I think, again, it's very important to emphasize that patients themselves may underestimate their exercise tolerance um, because they're born with a specific expectation, and that's not necessarily the same as, as our non-congenital population. And because of that, there's often a discrepancy between our subjective NYHA classification and their actual true exercise capacity measured by cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So in our congenital heart disease population, these are some primary indications for, for CPET uh, in, in this population, uh, predominantly to assess physical capacity, which is um, uh, a main goal, um, and then to also evaluate causes of exercise-induced symptoms, um, respect stratification and prognostication, and then to evaluate the need for medical therapy, uh, the success of medical therapy, uh, the potential for success with surgical or percutaneous procedures, 
and post repair, as well as the need for, for heart transplant or heart and lung transplant. Um, it can also be very useful when we're trying to prescribe a quote unquote exercise prescription um, or provide some recommendations that they can take to cardiac rehab. And it's also very useful to reassess their growth after they do complete cardiac rehab, either before or after uh, therapeutic uh, or surgical modality. The greatest value, like I alluded to, is really the ability to objectively uh, determine their maximal effort. And we, we use a specific parameter, the respiratory exchange ratio, to be able to define you know, whether or not they're able to extend their exercise capacity into the anaerobic metabolic state. So the next couple of slides are um, a little bit busy in the sense of having um, a great deal of text to them. But again, I wanted to introduce you to the parameters, the definitions that we use um, in case you do look at these reports and are trying to uh, decipher them for yourselves and understand how they may be relevant to your patients and how they can be useful to determine next steps in management. So peak VO2 is our oxygen consumption. And as you can imagine, it's quite lower um, in our congenital population than those who are healthy. And it can be very predictive of all-cause mortality, um, hospitalizations, as well as adverse outcomes. Um, heart rates in these populations tend to be blunted, blunted due to uh, an element of autonomic dysfunction. And these patients typically reach about 30 to 60% of their max predicted heart rate. Um, and they also come with a slew of arrhythmias that can be very common either before or after repair. Heart rate reserve, which we define as the difference between peak heart rate and uh, heart rate at specific recovery times, can also be compromised and, again, is linked to increased mortality, um, as well as increased risk of sudden cardiac death. Um, cardiac output, as you, can be, as you can imagine, is impaired. And we can you know, equate something called an oxygen pulse to um, stroke volume. It's basically the peak oxygen consumption over the heart rate, um, which can be quite impaired uh, in hypoxemic states um, related to abnormal peripheral oxygen extraction, such as what we see in deconditioning. Um, and we always want to interpret this in the context of heart rate. So I already told you that heart rate is oftentimes blunted in these populations. So we can sometimes see normal or supernormal oxygen pulses, which may not be necessarily accurate. Uh, and then work efficiency is also um, compromise in our heart, congenital heart disease patients. And this is essentially just measuring the metabolic cost of work. Um, when we're trying to evaluate whether these patients are actually able to um, hit their peak capacity, we oftentimes look at something called an anaerobic threshold, um, which is where we switch from aerobic to aerobic and anaerobic metabolic states. And you can also um, objectify this, uh, as Dr. Tonelli will probably discuss, by measuring blood lactate concentration as they increase their exercise. Um, typically, anaerobic thresholds, as you can imagine, are well below normal than in our non-congenital population. Some patients may not even reach their, reach their anaerobic threshold, um, and that may be related to heart failure or cyanosis um, and a VQ mismatch. We can also look at pulmonary dysfunction, um, specifically being able to identify restrictive physiology oftentimes, also identifying pulmonary muscle fatigue by looking at their max ventilatory rate um, and reduced FVC, and all of this can be associated with lower survival. Ventilatory efficiency is a very important parameter. It's basically our minute ventilation over our uh, carbon dioxide that's expired. Um, and this can be very comparable to elevated pulmonary pressure, so relevant to our pulmonary arterial hypertension population. Again, related to right to left shunting, which can be increased during exercise and increased VQ mismatch. Um, and it's a very, very powerful predictor of mortality in these populations, um, as well as in those who then have some element of heart failure and decline. And then oxygen saturation, you'll notice it's always on our reports. A decline greater than 5% is very significant, considered pathologic, and we always include a screen for anemia in this regard. 
So specific to our uh, congenital heart disease patients, um, I went through some of those parameters that you know you can see um, are abnormal in those versus a control population. And one thing that I just wanted to highlight here was when we look at the um, uh, VE, VCO2 or the ventilatory efficiency in our uh, congenital heart disease population, you can see that it's the highest in our Eisenmeyer's uh, population, which which makes sense. You know, this is more of a cyanotic population with significant uh, right to left uh, shunting. And then this was a nice slide, again, kind of comparing the different types of congenital abnormalities that we see. Um, and this is just showing our range of our peak oxygen consumption as a percent predicted. And you can see that it's, again, the lowest for our Eisenmenger population versus um, Fontana and Epstein's and just our simpler atrial and septal, uh, atrial and ventricular septal defect populations, even uh, aortic coarctation. So when we're looking specifically at our CHD and uh, pulmonary hypertension population, I think it's important to, again, note, you know, the short-term effects of pH and the long-term effects, um, you know, with this initial increased blood flow and the pulmonary vasculature due to shunting. And then long-term, um, you really develop this pulmonary obstructive arteriopathy associated with higher pulmonary pressures, which we can measure as ventilatory efficiency. Um, looking at their slopes, higher slopes, typically values above 34, um, are what we would call consistent with elevated pulmonary pressures. Um, and then, you know, lower peak oxygen uh, uptake. And then long-term adaptation may be able to preserve some exercise performance in this population, but we typically see a decline. Um, so our non-invasive pattern, just to kind of sum it up a little bit, so low peak uh, oxygen consumption, low end tidal partial pressure um, of carbon dioxide, and ventilatory inefficiency and low oxygen pulse are going to be the four parameters you really want to take a look at. <clears throat> Um, and this was a, a nice study that was looking at our congenital heart disease versus non-congenital uh, population with respect to pulmonary arterial hypertension. And I think this, you know, shows those parameters that we look at in non-invasive CPET. Um, so you can see for yourself just the differences in ventilatory efficiency here um, with the slope being higher, so abnormal in our congenital population, peak oxygen consumption being lower, our oxygen up, uh, pulse, again, a bit of a surrogate for stroke volume being lower in this population, as well as our oxygen saturation markedly being uh, lower. And when we actually pair these populations by their peak VO2, you still see um, that type of relationship in our resting hemodynamics and after exercise. Um, you know, most of these patients ended up being NYHA class 3 uh, with mean PA pressures, uh, 58 in our congenital population, um, and elevated PVRs. And then post-exercise, you can see that, again, paired by peak VO2, the ventilatory efficiency slope is elevated. Oxygen pulse is much lower as well as our oxygen saturation. Um, and so this, again, relates to, you know, the conversation that we're having about how important it is to be able to quantify, and I think in this regard, objectify uh, pulmonary pressures and in the setting of identifying what their exercise capacity truly is. So just to summarize, non-invasive uh, CPET is a valuable modality assessing functional capacity and objectively measure, measuring maximal effort, again, using that RER, um, respiratory exchange ratio uh, um, variable. Um, and we can assess the cardiopulmonary manifestations in this population to risk stratify and prognosticate. Um, and now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Tonelli, who will talk about the invasive uh, CPET. Good morning, and thank you for the invitation. And thank you, Tamana, for the heavy lifting that you did. Uh, make my life significantly easier now, uh, since I'm uh, only going to be adding the invasive part to the cardiopulmonary exercise uh, test. 
The main difference is that uh, for the invasive test, we add an arterial line and also a pulmonary artery catheter. And we have the, the patient connected to a, a, a CPED and we do exercise on a, on a bike. Since the hemodynamic needs to be really, relatively stable, we cannot do it uh, in, a, in, a, in a treadmill. The arterial line allows us to get uh, blood gases at rest, exercise and recovery. And this is important because we can calculate the A-A gradient and also the dead space the, uh, um, in a more reliable way than the estimations uh, provided by the CPED. Also, we can also carefully estimate the arterial blood pressure, sometimes with a cough, um, uh, it's, it's variable what the, the measurements we get, particularly at peak exercise, since the patient is moving, there's a lot of tensing of muscles. And then we can uh, better assess the anaerobic threshold because of the, we can use the lactic acid uh, slope. As we get the lactic acid different stages, we can trace a line and see where there's uh, a change in the slope. And that anaerobic threshold is a little bit more specific than the estimations done by uh, non-invasive CPAD. And the pulmonary artery catheter allows us to measure all the pulmonary pressures during the exercise, including mixed venous O2, which is important uh, for uh, calculation of cardiac output using a FIC equation, um, which is uh, more reliable than thermal dilution. As you can see, uh, the exercise goes so quickly than doing thermal dilution. If you don't get um, revalued, you don't have time to repeat it three times and get less than 15% difference between the measurements. So having a fit cardiac output is always important. And then you can also compare that uh, measured fit cardiac output with the predicted cardiac output and see how much the patient is off from the expected cardiac output. Uh, cardiovascular diseases usually have less than 80% of the predicted uh, cardiac output. We also measure CPK and ammonia at baseline and peak exercise allow us to determine myopathies and mitochondrial disorders uh, in, in which the CPK and ammonia are increased. This is pretty much the setup. As you can see, the patient's in the bike and has the um, uh, pulmonary catheter and the uh, arterial line in place where uh, we are getting the CPET. Uh, determinations. Because of all the value that uh, these tests add, um, uh, the, these are the, the, the number of studies we've done over the years. The yellow ones are the uh, invasive CPEDs, uh, and you can see the increase. This is uh, 2021, so we're just in April, but we're seeing a, an extraordinary increase in the number of requisition of that, uh, at the detriment of the decreasing of the just uh, Rohar cathode exercise alone. Um, since it provides really useful information, uh, particularly for unexplained dyspnea, um, when other tests are not uh, conducive to a diagnosis, lack of expected improvement with therapy, and also when you have competing causes, like just congenital heart diseases, uh, could the patient have other conditions that could be responsible for the shortness of breath and the uh, congenital heart disease is coincidental. And even when fixed, it may not resolve the dyspnea that could be caused by another component. The main diagnosis that the invasive CPED provides uh, includes the um, exercise-induced pH, uh, exercise-induced heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, preload uh, insufficiency, uh, dysautonomy, or mitochondrial disorders uh, or myopathies based on determinations of pulmonary pressures and also uh, oxygen uh, uptake and uh, lactic acid levels. 
Um, it's important to note that as uh, the pulmonary hypertension progresses over time, there is a, a, a reduction in the pulmonary microcirculation until it reaches a point and when you start having an increase in the pulmonary pressure. So um, early stages of pulmonary vascular disease, you wouldn't be able to detect with a regular right heart catheterization. You do need the uh, exercise to be able to detect uh, disease in, at early stages before the pulmonary microcirculation lowers below 40%, such as in the graph that I'm showing you here. And there are other two parameters that are important with uh, exercise you just wanted to highlight. And there, these are the slopes between uh, mean pulmonary pressure over cardiac output and the slopes of wedge over cardiac output. Um, um, it's important to have this relationship since the cardiac, when the cardiac output increases during exercise, the mean pressure goes up and the wedge goes up. So what would be normal, what would be abnormal? So people have postulated uh, slopes of, uh, of mean pressure over cardiac output to uh, diagnose uh, exercise-induced uh, pH. And if it is above three um, wood units, um, then it would be uh, abnormal. And for the wedge, uh, the slope is two. If the slope is uh, above two wood units of wedge over cardiac output, uh, that wedge is increasing uh, more than expected for the increasing cardiac output, and then you have to consider um, uh, heart failure uh, with preserved uh, ejection fraction in the presence of a normal uh, LV ejection fraction. We have been seeing more and more patients with uh, preload failure or uh, chronically low uh, uh, preload. These patients cannot really mount uh, a cardiac output response during exercise, and, and by different mechanisms, um, they have uh, a shortness of breath. And this is uh, related to this autonomy um, and um, uh, likely veins not able to constrict enough to uh, get uh, a good uh, ventricular uh, preload. That's defined when we do a test is the right atrial pressure doesn't increase, the right atrial pressure remains low, the wedge also remains low, and the uh, VO2 is less than, uh, MAP peak is less than 80%, and the percentage of predicted maximum cardiac output is also less than 80%. In those conditions, uh, we could uh, uh, consider this disease, which we just uh, uh, presented a paper and uh, with uh, some um, interesting pathophysiology, how it can potentially cause shortness of breath. So in conclusion, um, the invasive CPET is an essential test for evaluation of uh, shortness of breath of unknown origin when conventional tests, including CPETs, are uh, not uh, diagnostic. Um, careful evaluation should be paid to pitfalls, uh, particularly uh, pulse ox, uh, thermal dilution, cardiac output when doing a, a um, tests uh, without uh, uh, an arterial line or, or, or invasive determination. And this test needs to be done in a center with experience because it requires a full coordination of a big team of people uh, that uh, have a very coordinated um, group of actions to uh, deliver the best results uh, possible. And with that, um, I, I finish. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.